0: When you go, all France is with you.
1: Yes, and the last time I came home, all France was with you. And a slice of Italy, too.
2: <laughs> the Marx Brothers Council Podcast presents yet another coronavirus edition of the Jay Hopkins Interviews. This is Volume 4, Steve Stolier. Hi, everyone. This is Bob Gasell, and welcome to another vintage interview from the archives, or should I say, uh, drawer of Jay Hopkins. And guess what? My cohorts have run out of excuses, so they've decided to join us today. How about that? Uh, so let's meet them. First, from New York City, he licked coronavirus like it was Tootsie fritzy ice cream. Here he is, Noah Diamond. Thank you. Thank you. I can
1: also lick my weight in wild caterpillars.
2: And from Bath, England, where he is currently 17th in line for the crown and rising fast, Matthew Conium. Matthew? Matthew? Well, we'll put out a search party for Matthew and uh, perhaps he'll join us later on. In the meantime, let me introduce the man himself who has become famous for not sounding anything like people expect him to, Jay Hopkins. How you doing, Jay?
3: Just fine. It's great to have Noah joining us this time.
2: I'll say. She is. (laughs) Was that a plug?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, these days, hey, a chance to talk to people, I'm not going to pass that up, even if it's (laughs) you guys.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to hear Jay's 1979 interview with Steve Stoller. Steve, of course, rose to prominence by leading the campaign to get Animal Crackers re-released in 1974 after it was unavailable in the U.S. for over 20 years due to legal issues. During this time, Steve became acquainted with Groucho and his personal assistant, slash companion, slash whatever, the infamous Aaron Fleming, who soon hired Steve to work at Groucho's house, answering the fan mail, or organizing the archives, and whatever else needed to get done. But in retrospect, the most important thing that Steve did was observe Groucho during these final years and uh and the turbulent household run by Aaron, which in nineteen ninety six resulted in the heartfelt book Raised Eyebrows, which sincerely is a required reading for every Marks fan. Now, unlike our previous Jay Hopkins interview subjects, Steve is still around and kicking, but we think this 1979 interview is especially worthwhile because it was done less than two years after his time with Groucho was finished, and the memories of the people and the events were still fresh in Steve's mind, so you may hear a few small details that you've never heard anywhere else. But before we get to that, Jay, why don't you tell us how you first came in contact with Steve?
3: Well, let me begin by saying I was very fortunate because um, there was an article about Groucho appearing at UCLA that was at the beginning of that campaign for the re-release of Animal Crackers. And I knew Groucho's address, but I didn't think I'd get a response if I wrote to Groucho Marx, and I'm convinced (laughs) that that is correct, but... Uh, seeing Steve's name in this story, and there was a photo of him as well, I thought, well, why not write to Steve Stolier at 1083 Hillcrest Road? And he did, obviously, write back. And that began a pretty long correspondence, a, a long mm-hmm. and delightful correspondence. But that's how we first met.
2: And so when you decided to come out to California to do all your interviews, you had no problem getting him on board?
3: And whatsoever, I think you'll notice that the very first utterance is of me laughing uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. It's because um we are on such good terms that you know we uh we
2: had a giggle or two during this thing. Do you think if you would have got out to California earlier, you think you might have been able to meet with Groucho himself?
3: Well, I think I may have told you guys this during another exchange, but I was uh I wasn't particularly interested in encountering Groucho, as much as I adored the man, I was a little intimidated by him. So, you know, I I really think I probably could have weaseled my way into an introduction, but I, you know, uh, I, I think this was recorded during my very first trip out there. It's not like I would commute out to L.A. on a daily basis. And uh, by this time, of course, by 1979, he had passed away by that time. Mm -hmm. So um, a combination of factors uh, led me never to meet the great man. When
1: specifically in 1979 this was, and was Zeppo still alive? I I think Zeppo died late in the year.
2: This is March 21st of 79.
3: Okay, so Zeppo was still around. Well, I was telling you that story in New York. A couple of months ago noah and uh, i was out there with a couple of friends of mine and they had actually connected with zeppel and i just wandered into their room to see what that day's itinerary was and they handed me the phone and said hey talk to zeppel yeah so i had a very short exchange with zeppel marks
1: it's very similar to the story steve tells you in this interview and and later in raised eyebrows and elsewhere about just being given Groucho on the phone by Aaron, um, sort of unprepared. Maybe that's the best way to talk to a Marx brother on the phone.
2: I suspect so, yes. (laughs) Okay, so that pretty much sets the scene. So why don't we uh, climb into the Wayback Machine and head back to March 21st,
0: 1979. Steve Stoller. Say
4: something. (laughs) You seem to be doing fine by yourself. (laughs) Now we're going to sit in uncontrollable hysterics now. No, no, we had the expense of your tape. Uh, Steve, how did you um, become Groucho's secretary? Some friends and I, yes. in okay. December of 1973, uh, heard that there was a print of animal crackers running in Orange County, very uh, very near Disneyland, and we knew how scarce the film was hadn't been seen in 20 years and all that stuff. So we decided we would pile into a car and in the midst of the energy shortage, gas shortage, blow a tank of gas and going down to see Animal Cracker. Mm -hmm. And it was a miserable print. You couldn't tell Dumont from Groucho. And uh, on the way back, I wondered if Groucho knew it was available because I didn't know whether he had his own print or whether he had to wait 20 years to see it or whatever. But I knew you couldn't just look up in the... Beverly Hills phone book under Mark's comma Groucho and call him up and say Animal Crackers is playing in Anaheim in case you're interested. But I did know that Harry Ruby's phone number was in the phone room. Mm. So I called Ruby and his, I think, nurse answered and said that he was napping, but she took my number down. If, if he had answered the phone, none of it would have come about because he wouldn't have had to take my phone number down. But because the nurse answered, she took the phone number down, and then he called me back, which was like the biggest thrill of my life at the time because I was able to know, you know, who he was and what he had done, even outside of the Marx Brothers stuff, all the tunes and Broadway and whatnot. So that was uh, around Christmas time of 73, and he said, well, he'd tell Grasso that it was playing, and that, that thrilled me to know that. Through a secondary source, a message was going to be relayed to the master. Hmm. So on January 1st, New Year's Day of 1974, I received a call at my house from Aaron Fleming. Who shall shall remain blameless. And uh, she told me that she was interested in discussing this animal crackers thing because it hadn't been... She wanted to know how they got a print. And I said I had no idea, but I was thankful to have seen it. And she said that she had been trying to convince Universal for years to release Animal Crackers, but they were more interested in Downhill Racer and things like that and didn't think anyone was interested in a Marx Brothers film that hadn't been seen in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And she sort of wanted to take me down to Universal as a Exhibit A, you know, with a huh. a tag on my big toe saying, this is someone who would spend a tank of gas in the midst of the energy crisis to go down to Orange County to see a scratchy print of Animal Crackers. So don't mm-hmm. you think it's worth striking new prints to run around town? So... Talking to her was a thrill because I was able to appreciate who she was. And, uh, you know, she gave me some personal insight into Groucho, which I would not otherwise have gotten. Mm -hmm. And she had to leave. I think they were going to see Sleeper. I could hear him in the background calling, which was also thrilling. So near and yet so far. I could Mm -hmm. hear him, but he couldn't hear me.
0: The fact that they were going to see Sleeper was interesting.
4: Oh, I don't know. He was a big Woody Allen fan going way I mean, back. It's They've it's been corresponding nice. since the nice. '60s. So I and I was getting set up at, at UCLA in an apartment slash dorm, and uh, told her I'd have to call her back when my phone got set up there. So through several phone conversations, some friends and I devised what became the committee for the re-release of Animal Crackers or Crack, which is immensely hysterically inventive. I had to come up with a name when I went to the dean's office. It's so silly. It was a scene out of a Marx Brothers film. They said, well, of course, we'll let you we'll let you uh, set up your table and uh, get signatures to get the film released. What's the name of your committee? And I said, well, we really don't have one. And they said, well, then we can't authorize you to do it. And it was, like, irrelevant that we didn't have a name. It seemed to me that we had a just enough cause. So I sat down with a pencil and worked out committee for the re-release of Animal Crackers. And all the other uh, all the other causes on Bruin Walk, Bruin Walk is this long stretch of cement yeah. where you have to run the gauntlet each day of getting pamphlets and flyers and everything from legalization to marijuana to stricter immigration and gay rights and and uh, Iranian freedom and everything else. And all the other causes were jealous because people would be sign have no qualms about signing our petition because it seemed like such a cinch. Uh, so we would get hundreds of signatures a day, and everyone else would walk by their tables. Although there were a few diehard non-signers that had just had such bad experiences with petitions, people asked me if they had to be registered voters. <laughs> One guy wanted to know if the FBI was going to receive a copy of this. You know, In fact, I suppose if they were interested enough, they could find out who signed it. But and even after even after explaining to them that no, it's just going to be shown to Universal to let them know, they well, yeah, well, I like the Marx Brothers, but. I, I don't think so. I, I just Most prefer know not to sign. you're
0: talking about.
4: Well, we have this little... It was like a cover sheet on front of the petition, and it said that there's a 1930 Marx Brothers film that's never been seen, or that hasn't been seen in 20 years, never been on television. I, what I couldn't stand with people that said, no, I've seen that on... I know I've seen that on television. <sighs> and it, it's that instance where you, you know you're right, but you just can't... It's like in Annie Hall when he pulls... What's his name out of the... Out of line... The medium is the message. What's his
0: name?
4: Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> it's that instance when you want to just pull the source out and say, no, you're wrong. So they swore up and down. Oh, yeah, I've seen that on television. Now, that's the one with the mirror scene, Animal Crackers. And they'd walk away before you could explain it. So I met Groucho uh, at the co-op that I was staying at at UCLA Because he and Aaron were on their way to a party one night, and she wanted copies of the Daily Bruin that had the story of our campaign in it. And so she drove up in a Mercedes with Groucho, and I made a point of telling no one outside of my roommate that they were arriving, which lost quite a few friends subsequently when they found out that he was down in the garage, and no one else knew about it. But I didn't want a mob scene. So... I finally met him and took his hand and said, I'm very happy to meet you. And he said, well, you should be. And Oh, but I had spoken to him briefly on the phone during the setup of the Animal Crackers campaign. Aaron had I was talking to her because we had countless conversations setting up the campaign. And one day, I didn't even know she was with him. She just said, well, here, I'll let you talk to him. And in the next second, Groucho Marx was on the phone. Mm-hmm. I was totally unprepared. You know, I have to rehearse hours ahead of time to meet any celebrity, yes. figure out what to say that might won't make you come off as a schnook, even though whatever you say probably will just because you want to talk to them and they probably don't want to talk to you. I said, oh, what did he have? He said, hello. And I said, hello. And I said, how are you doing? And he said, how am I doing what? And I said, how are you doing whatever you're doing? And he said, I'm using the telephone. What are you doing? And I said, I'm using the telephone, too. Isn't that a coincidence? And he said, yes, it's a small world. And something else. And he said, well, I'll let you talk to my secretary, Miss Fleming. And that was it. Which That was about all the contact I thought I'd ever have with him. Although I think she did make vague promises that I'd get to shake his hand or get a picture signed or something like that. So the actual meeting was at the co-op, and then about a a couple weeks after that, he showed up at UCLA with newsmen and everyone else, and we sat and chatted coast-to-coast with the major networks about what we were trying to do. And shortly after that, it was announced that Animal Crackers would be reissued in Westwood to see if it would work and end up setting the house record at the UA Westwood and I didn't want to lose touch with Groucho. You know, I was totally intoxicated with the series of events that had taken place. It was either March or May, but it was only a few months after talking to Aaron. And I had, you know, so wanted to meet Groucho to the point of almost wanting to stake out the places that he used to eat and walk up and down Beverly Drive daily just to run into them. But you never do it like that. You always run into them a minute after they were there. Or, or Of course, you can't run into them a minute after they're there unless it's Claude rain. Uh and I wanted to keep in touch with them without being a pest. Again, always gnawing away at me that they think I'm a schnook. And uh, as it turns out, at that time, Aaron needed someone to handle the fan mail, with it, which had gotten voluminous. V-O-L-U-M-I-N-O-U-S. I which had gotten Val-Voluminous. Voluminous? Yes. That's no relation to Val Luton, who directed the Body Snatch. That's right. Um, or produced the Body Snatch. At any rate which is costly at this point, what with tape the way it is. Mm-hmm. She agreed to let me work at his house, answering fan mail and organizing his memorabilia for donation to the Smithsonian, because she felt that I had sufficient background in the Marx Brothers and their their story to do it right, because he had boxes of letters. and
0: Didn't she meet fans of Groucho daily? She just kind of brushed it off, and then all of a sudden she just kind of
4: Well, that was something that my own vanity got in the way of common sense, because there was one phone call, and uh, I think we were talking about the insinuation that he was a dirty old man because he was hanging around with a young chick, because that seemed to be everyone's belief at the time, because he was so old and she was so young and attractive, and uh, there must be, you know, dirty business going on, like with... Koogie and uh, Char although they were married which i guess makes it okay for a 90,000 year old man to go with a 17 year old girl. <laughs> and uh it just seemed like the classic you know rich man I'll can get yeah can get girl with furs and all that. And she said you're kidding and i said no i mean that that's she said, well who thinks that and i said well i mean i've just heard that that's what people think. And she said, "Well, how could they possibly think the groucher was a dirty old man and she she made it sound like it was such a shock to her, and then on reflection, I mean, it must have been obvious yeah. that either that was the case in the first place, or I'm sure she must realize that any young, cute young girl put next to an old, rich man comes off as gold digging. so uh, I tended to buy everything you know she told me about how important I was, and uh, how rare I was." You know, we had succeeded in getting crackers off the shelf, so I suppose I did stick out a little further than someone that... Yeah. yeah. And I was never the kind that just wanted to rattle off, you know, impressive, that I knew the dialogue to Love Happy and knew who was the assistant editor on the big store and stuff like that. She knew I wasn't a fanatic to the point where I lost sight of, you know, reality and important things. And so I started working in summer of 74.
0: Had she met... uh Tom will hide by this time.
4: Yeah, because Tom. And he
0: had, would seem like a candidate to get crackers
4: for this. Well, he was still studenting in Iowa, and uh, that's where she had run into him, and she had stayed in marginal, or he had stayed in marginal touch with them. And then after he graduated, she got him a job for Rogers and Cowan publicity firm. He's now director of publicity at Disney. He's done very well. Okay. He's a, a yardstick that we're all embarrassed to stand next to. It's like. Orson Welles did Citizen Kane at the time of your age. What have you done? You know, Mozart composed a symphony when he five and you can't play the piano. So now Wilhite is the one we're all gauging ourselves against because he's, he's done really well. So no, he wasn't in any position to influence anyone. And by organizing our committee and getting a petition, we multiplied the striking power of one person and showed them that there were all sorts of people that wanted to see this movie. Mm-hmm. And then it was reissued across America. And Groucho went to New York for the premiere there. And I started working for him after he came back.
0: Well, did she just turn in and say, hey, you did such a good job at this, maybe you could manage this correspondence?
4: Sort of. Well, it wasn't her idea that I worked for them. I asked if there's anything. Actually, what happened was two summer jobs fell through, and I thought I had nothing to lose by asking. There was this guy that made Groucho watches who who promised me that he would get me a job, and every time I called him up, he'd say, uh, I think something's going to break uh, next week, and uh, things look really good, and I'll I'll talk with you later.
0: A job doing what? A I don't know. I mean, uh,
4: <laughs> what I, I told, you know, uh, he vaguely said something about, like, publicity and uh, maybe writing copy for the company or something like that. Anyway, he I think his company has gone under or something like that. And then another summer job I had lined up also fell through, and I was left with you know my father breathing down my neck saying you have to get a job you can't even mm-hmm. understand when i was your age you know i was eating bread and in the snow <laughs> so i you know i called her and i said is there is there any possible can I, you know can you use me for anything at all and that's what turned into the 3 year job i was the longest surviving employee outside of the gardener who didn't figure into it as mm-hmm. it turned out
0: so up to that time what has she been doing ignoring the mail completely or, or? were just uh,
4: piling it up? Or... I, Yeah, it was uh, there, there were huh? drawers of mail that went back to 72. Oh, this is when? 70... I mean, this was 74. <laughs> and he was getting a lot of fan mail on a day-to-day basis, so it mounts up. Oh. There wasn't so much that, you know, it wasn't Friber McGee's closet. But, but uh, I mean, there was a lot. And, you know, of course, when it was just... The average fan letter—it wasn't even worth answering after two years, because yeah. the kid has long since stopped running out to his mailbox. He might have been, you know, overseas by that point. <laughs> and uh, if they sent pictures with self-addressed stamped envelopes, I'd bring it into him and he'd sign it and send it off. Or if there was something specific they they really needed, then I'd then I'd answer their letter or something. But I tend to think that after two years, they sort of didn't care what it was like working with Thelma Todd or something like that. They, yeah. And there was, you know, and I was already falling behind on the. I was working seven days a week then. I work. The first week I worked Monday through Saturday, and I and I said, "Well, I guess Sunday's my day off." And I was sitting at home Sunday, and I'm thinking, "What am I doing? I could be at Groucho Marx's house." And I got in my car and I drove over there because she, I could t- totally make my own hours. I was paid on an hourly basis. How oh
0: much?
4: Three an hour to start, oh. how much which went to five after that. Really? I could kill you. <laughs> Realize yeah. how many people are going to be
0: envious
4: of you. Well, that was a lot of money at that time. I'm not kidding. No, I know. I didn't even ask for the raise, you know I gave I left it up to her totally because I didn't want I didn't want to throw something out that was so low that she'd be taking advantage of me and I didn't want to throw something so high out that she'd think I was gold digging. I would you know if I didn't have incidental expenses, I would just as soon have worked there for nothing or paid them to work in his house by the hour, you know.
0: So, if someone were to compose a letter, this is a great question, you know. If someone were to compose a letter that they wanted to make sure they got an answer from Groucho, what would they
4: have to do? I mean, An would, answer from Groucho?
0: Yeah. Or did he ever send answers, personal answers? I mean, he did. Uh, R C said he sent the last Groucho letter to Krasna. To
4: Krasna, yeah. I took that. I took the dictate. I typed that it up. It was a great letter, too. Short. You know. But we were amazed that he, and then he signed at Hackenbush because we didn't think that he would even bother taxing his mind for the private joke that had been going on for 40 years. Yeah. You know, there were things in letters that I thought he might get a kick out of hearing about that he totally was disinterested in, and then there were some things that someone would write him about, and he'd tell all his friends about what someone had written. Someone said they had seen Duck Soup 20 times and wanted to name their horse after him. Well, I had already seen Duck Soup about 16 times, and he didn't feel that he had to tell people that I had seen Duck Soup 16 times. But the fact that this guy had seen it 20, and I'm sure people have seen it 40 and 50, the real die-in-the-wool yeah. aficionados. died. But this guy wanted to name his horse after him, and he got a big kick out of that, and so, that's no funny. pun intended, and so he, uh, that's the sort of thing. And then I get a letter from someone saying, I remember you when you were a kid, I remember your house in Great Neck, and you know, all this sort of stuff. And I'd take it in, and he'd say, yeah, so. And so there was no gauging how it's he'd take it. But for the most part, fan mail, and with good good reason, it it all fell into the same mold, because you would try to be original. I sent him a fan letter in 71.
0: Did
4: you? And it never got an answer. Actually, I'm surprised that Erin didn't even send me a picture or something, because she was doing that stuff. You didn't find it in the drawers. I guess okay. it was 72. No. No, unfortunately, I would like. I oh, I rough drafted it like three times, and I just wanted to steer clear of any of the silliness that you want to say. Mm-hmm. But you want to make them understand that you appreciate them, and you're not just this. Well, I like you, and I saw you in this, and you were funny, and that. Yeah,
0: right. You want to be as untypical as possible.
4: And I was, I was appalled at a lot of the fan letters because they'd be in longhand and pencil. Really. And you know, well, I, I guess I don't blame them when they're six years old because they just don't realize. You know, if if Groucho ever sees the letter in the first place, you have to understand that it's going he's gonna be an eighty year old man reading this and what you know, I would never dream of sending anything other than a, a type letter out to someone like that. Just for their own sake, just to be able to read it. And plus it looks a little slicker, but he would get things on just just scribbled scroll on napkins and lipstick and stuff like that. And the and I also went to such great lengths to find his home address. Did you? Back in 72, yeah. Well, actually, it was what in the Beverly Hills do? phone book, which I yes. didn't need to go any further than that. His number wasn't, as we already brought up. But I didn't have a Beverly Hills phone book. Someone looked it up and got it for me, and I sent it to him. And then after working there, I realized that it was so hard not to get a letter to him. You would have to really go out of your way to have the letter come back. He would get letters to Groucho Marx, USA. <laughs> Groucho Marx, one of them One of them was from South Africa. Yeah. And it was addressed to the Three Brothers, Hollywood, Culver City, London. No hint of the March Brothers. It was could have been the Rich Brothers. could have been the Weir Brothers. could have been the Three Stooges if they thought it was the Howards. Hollywood, Culver City, which are two different places. London, which is a different continent, and it got to him. Yeah. And so, here I'm thinking, God, I don't know if I put Hillcrest Drive or Hillcrest Road. They might not, uh, right, you know, some code, of so. them just had his picture on it.
0: Uh, what did you do besides answer the mail?
4: My other main job was to organize his memorabilia for the Smithsonian. He had boxes of letters and photographs and programs and stuff that uh, just amazing stuff that he saved uh, that he just thrown into boxes and thrown in the closet. He had his personal scrapbooks of the reviews of Alsatias
0: Mm
4: -hmm. and all the little blurbs saying, The Marx Brothers are now moving to Texas to put on The Coconuts, the new Irving Berlin review, that sort of thing. And he had one for, I think, all three of the major stage shows. And there was a general scrapbook for the 30s and 40s and then the 50s. And uh, it tapered off in the early 60s, I guess because his career did also. There's like a You Bet Your Life scrapbook also. And then since he didn't really do anything in the 60s, there probably wasn't anything... Mm-hmm. That's the only time you can really say he came close to retirement was after you bet your life when yeah. the London show fell flat and there was nothing but an occasional appearance on the Cavett show, and uh, all the all the newspapers that had anything about the, the honorary Oscar, the Carnegie show, Iowa was it Iowa Iowa, getting going to the Cannes festival and getting the Legion of Honor medal. Uh, all those things, all the newspapers pertaining to that, had just been stored by Aaron. She hadn't bothered clipping them because she got so busy being business manager. That's right. So I had to put in every clipping that had mentioned him, which had gotten quite sizable since it was during the Renaissance mm-hmm. for the Marsh brothers. And I filled up like three huge scrapbooks. Just I had to first get a pile for 1971, 72, 73, and then by month and then so that was a, it. Wasn't. Enormous task, mm. and then I would keep that up as new things would be appearing.
0: Did he look them over then, or was it just you know
4: for his No, no, he probably saw him in the morning paper three years ago, and then that was a you know Aaron saved yeah. it, right. and then it wasn't. Well, he until... must have
0: saved them originally, so he was interested, but not at that point in time.
4: Right. you mean, the twenties.
0: Yeah, right. In twenties and through his
4: career, he was saving that stuff. Yeah, yeah. but it stopped in the sixties.
0: Who did you meet? I know you met Perelman and well and several people who worked on films, but who stands out in
4: your mind is interesting. George Byrne stands out for probably because he's such a really nice guy. yeah and uh, you know there's a lot of phonies in Hollywood and people that have no tolerance for fans and that sort of thing. It's possible that I wasn't getting an accurate reading on a lot of the people because since I was inside Groucho's house that probably meant I was okay in one way or another. And so I wasn't probably shouldn't have been treated like someone that they might have just run into walking walking down the street. They didn't probably you know, a lot of people there didn't know whether I was one of his grandchildren. You know. They figured well, if you're inside right. here you must be someone and so I guess I won't be Snooty to you, but anyway, never
0: introduced you. I just kind of hung around. No, well, Aaron
4: would introduce me, oh. Oh, uh, and then they could be snide after that right. because they realized I was nothing. <laughs> anyway, Burn and Jack Lemon is also a really nice man. Oh, yeah. And uh, Billy Marks at Groucho's 84th birthday party went over to him and said, You know, I've met a lot of phonies in this town, but I'll have to tell you, there's that you're really a nice guy. And Lemon said, there's no reason not to be, which I thought was pretty poignant. Because it's true, there's really no reason not to be a nice guy. But there's a lot of people that aren't. So Burns and, and Lemon seem to stand out.
0: Well, what about some of the legendary writers that you introduced to? You? Because they are a uh, comedy writer. Yes. According to legend.
4: According to Hector's book. According to Hector's
0: book. What does he know?
4: What did you meet besides Perelman? Irving Brecker, Eddie Bazell, uh, Maury Riskin, Nat Perrin. Mm. Who's alive? Ruby died during the Animal Crackers campaign, so I never got mm. to see any more of him than a brief phone call, which I regret because everyone says he was such a nice guy. Everyone says he's great. Uh, I don't know. Who's left? It's about all of <laughs> this. Whoever's podcast. alive, I probably met outside of... And then it's, Zeppo and Gummo. Okay,
0: as long as... Wait a minute, let me check this. As long as you checked... Um, I mean, checked. As long as you stop around, that kind of spoils that that story about him and Groucho having a
4: feud, right? Was there a feud? The or... problem with, with uh, saying that, that the things you read weren't true because Groucho didn't say anything about it or something like that, and he was so old the last few years that I don't know whether it was a change of heart or whether he just, like, forgotten that he was supposed to be mad. And so, you know, people would write letters saying, you used to say Night at the Opera was your favorite film, and I heard an interview that said you said Duck Soup was your favorite film. Why did you change your mind? Well, I don't know, maybe Duck Soup was the first film that popped into his mind, or maybe he realized that all the students seemed to be going for Duck Soup more than Night at the Opera, and so he started believing that it was better, even though his heart still belonged to Night at the Opera and Day at the Races. So I don't know if you can compare whatever falling out he had with Perelman in the '60s or whenever it was with having dinner with him.
0: Well, at least Perelman wasn't holding a direct. No, not at all.
4: Yeah, he was
0: so sick of
4: the Yeah, that's what I had heard. I was surprised. I was surprised that he was as personable as he was because I'd heard that he was a sort of a hermit. That didn't like a misanthropic person that just didn't get along with others and all that. But again, it might've been the fact that since I was on the inside, I wasn't just a schnook. But yeah, i had heard that he was bored to tears with the Marx brothers. Didn't want to talk about them. And with good reason because having like 20 books under his belt and being a writer for sure. the New Yorker for 40 years. And whenever he appears anywhere, they always say, what was it like? Yeah. He was at, at the university of Santa Barbara. And I went there. There were two different, Two different times that he appeared there, and I could only go to one because it was so far, and I had school. And it was one where he read selections from his own writings, which he was told interesting. Me and then
0: he, he wrote it after
4: me. Well, that was a subsequent one where he answered questions oh. from the audience. Uh-huh. No one wanted to know about the New Yorker. No one wanted to know about Robert Benchley, which again is is trespassing because you're not supposed to ask people who are distinguished in their own right what it was like knowing someone else. I made the mistake when I was with like Patrick Knowles, asking him about Errol Flynn. Which, Not a mistake, but if you dwell on them, you realize... They start to realize that you don't care about them so much as the fact that they need some.
0: (laughs) And
4: and Frank is the Wolfman. Um, Anyway, he was was written up in the Santa Barbara thing saying... uh, Author Perelman personifies gap between author and works.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Which, you know, he comes out once every 50 years and talks to college kids. And the one time he does, they gave him a bomb review. I'm sure he didn't care. I don't know. I might. I mean, he was. He did it as a favor to a friend of his who's a dean down there, and he doesn't like public. uh, Doesn't like speaking publicly particularly. He stammers a lot. He just he likes to sit with his typewriter and and express himself through there. He's a very quiet, mild-mannered guy. I never believed that he was the main contributor to monkey business. As neat as
0: a pin, too.
4: Yeah, very dapper. Do you
0: know what? Uh, I think I told you what these these, uh, twelve-year-old kids did. They claimed to it was done. They ran up to him with these stills from monkey business and said, autograph these. I couldn't believe it, you know? Condescending.
4: No, condescending. That was a smart one. I had him sign Don Ginsburg for Vance. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Groucho strolled into my office one day with a copy of Cavett, which hadn't been out yet. And I oh. think Cavett had sent it. He sent him like the first copy. That off that when the he presses? said I want
0: a, a blurb for it? Or was that it?
4: No, he had already gotten the blurb oh. but it was an advanced still an advanced copy because it hadn't at the bookstalls yet. Mm-hmm. And I had I hadn't been a real fan of Cavett's. I think I'd preferred Carson. Yeah. And uh he came in and said, Read this, you'll enjoy it. And it was more of a command than a suggestion. He just <laughs> said, Read this, you'll enjoy it, and shuffled down the hall back to his room. And I thought it was rather audacious of Cavett at thirty mm-hmm. what, seven or eight to write his memoirs. Yeah. So I took it home and I started reading it and it's probably my favorite book.
0: It is perhaps my
4: favorite. It is perhaps my favorite book because yes. when it isn't being hysterical with his pinpoint reminiscences of childhood, he's mentioning things that he went through that I could relate to and or just being really witty on a yeah, intelligence I, I, stand.
0: Yeah. Speaking of relating to cavity Goes on about how much uh, adoration he had for his old stars. and You know, you kind of imagine him or imagine yourself doing what he does. He walks up to uh, Fred Allen when he comes out of the theater, nervously
4: nervous like gets uh, some kind of an autograph, now, and Allen ducks in a cab. And... Well, he says in his book when he first met Groucho and he got into the car with him, he his mind was also outside of the car watching. Groucho drive away with him, wondering what they're talking about, because he remember, <laughs> And I've I've done the same thing. Like I'll be, like when I met Astaire, I was thinking, I wish I could be watching me meet Fred Astaire, oh, wondering what I'm saying. So it's, I can understand that. You haven't met Woody yet. though? I haven't met him. No, he's shown my letters to him, and he likes them. Woody's also, I understand, he's real strange about meeting people. Yeah, you can guess that though. He comes off as rather neurotic and. Well, that's what stand-off. he said on
0: the but, Cabot Show. PBS show. He said, uh, You know, I, I envy you. He said to Dick because you can just kind of walk in and eat the hors d'oeuvres you know, and get along with everyone, whereas I just kind of shy away. Well,
4: that's true, though. Yeah. And it's probably too bad that Alan's as big as he is because the problem is probably bigger than ever trying to avoid people. Yeah. Although, right. although he's down at Michael's Pub every Monday night playing the clarinet. Yeah, that's I don't understand that accessibility. Well, he
0: probably just kind of escapes when he's playing music kid. I don't know.
4: I, I mean, I tend to think if people know about it, they'll just run up with copies of Without Feathers and stills and all that sort of stuff, and you're so funny, you're so great, and you yeah. would never show up there again.
0: That film we ran at the last meeting, that documentary, Allen, it showed him discussing Annie Hall before it looked like a college crowd. And um, you no, know, he just went on into his editing of the film and all this. And then to show them after his talk, signing a book or signing mm-hmm. a picture or something, and just chatting with the crowd. I thought, what is this? I mean, he actually it's a does stunt this. double. <laughs> it was set up for the film.
4: Now. Did you know that he's, he did a film on Bob Hope?
0: He did, because Cabot says in that show, what would you do if you were, you know, what clips would you take if you were to take highlights from Hope. the career of Bob Hope?
4: That's so he true. actually did make one. It's true. I like Hope also in the Paramount years. You know, it's too easy to judge him on those, hey, how about Texaco? No, but I want to tell you, this is President Carter like is really great. Sh-
0: I used to laugh hysterically over his TV shows. Never.
4: Never. I never thought the TV shows were any good. You just sit up there looking at the cards, reading stuff that wasn't even worth reading in the first place. Yeah. But, the, but the road pictures and the stuff like my favorite brunette, you know, those whodunit type things that he did. He was really very good. His I timing was easy. fine. Because they always talk about his impeccable timing,
0: yeah.
4: which is anything but impeccable on the TV shows. You know, his timing is terrible. He'll talk over the applause. He'll wait too long before hitting the punchline. It's like any amateur schnook could get up there and deliver it better. And they talk about Bob Hope's uncanny knack for timing. But that you have to watch the Paramount, the Road Pictures. The
0: worst thing I ever saw on one of his shows was his last well, not his last, but his Christmas
4: show last year. Well, the one with Groucho on it was pretty close to that. That Joy's. That was. This is more of a variety type show, and
0: his wife was on it. So they're singing "Silver Bells," and it's this terrible set
4: Um, with the soap flakes dropping down from the ceiling. Soap flakes.
0: He had his little kind of like a a golfing cap on, and a wearing coat. And his wife was all dolled up. She's singing a song, and she's looking at her husband, and his her husband's just kind of staring off in space. He must have been reading the cards or
4: something. I thought, why does he look at his wife? Because the cameras are on him. That's why. Well, They, they mean, said
0: he, he hasn't seen a guest in years. No, she hasn't done. performed.
4: Yeah, he's always out of town for Christmas. I don't know what he's doing now. There's no wars on him. He must be bored to tears. Yeah, that's
0: beautiful. At any rate, um, talking about the people who, okay. who you've seen at Groucho's. Mae West. She was at Groucho's? Mm hmm.
4: So usually the people that you don't expect to be there aren't there because he called them up and said, why don't you come over? Yeah, there? Because either Aaron or someone, some tangential person, uh, was able to arrange it. In this case, Stan Musgrove, who is a producer and one of the uh, board of people at USC, uh, is a close friend of Hector Arce's. And it was under Stan's guidance that the tribute at USC took place in, what, 76. Something like that. And Stan has also been close friends with Mae West for years. Um, and so they arranged a dinner. I wasn't there for the dinner, but I was there after dinner. That's remarkable. Think Two dinosaurs.
0: I asked you once if um, there was ever a, a movie planned. Um, and you said, it, you know, even if it, there, there could never be such a thing because they, they work with different studios and their styles just wouldn't work. And she wasn't the film. Todd type, we we were the
4: two they were type. both the strong, wisecracking characters, yeah. and so it would have been like George it would have been Burns like Maybe maybe Fields G- in the list, which,
0: You know, it's not the same, Their yeah, but that
4: worked out. Yeah, I guess so. Male and female, or maybe worked. the brothers would have worked as well as maybe
0: just Grouse in the
4: West.
0: Well, you think of these things because, you know, like you say, they're dinosaurs. Oh, well,
4: the thing that frustrates me is, that, have you ever seen any of the stills of of Barrymore and Fields? Because they were old pals. Yeah, right. Uh, I know someone that has one of the original stills, and on the back of it it says, John Barrymore and W.C. Fields, who are currently planning a picture at Paramount. And f- I forgot what it's about, but or if they even knew what it was about, but, like, Fields was going to write it. And that's the thing where your imagination could totally go yeah. haywire. Because it was in the late 30s when Barrymore was doing all those uh, odd character roles, mm-hmm. and Fields was always fine in the late 30s and early 40s. And that would have been a hell of a picture. With two of them that I'm sure the stuff on the set would have been better than any of the stuff that would have been captured on film. Sure. That's a great first. There's so
0: many things like that, though. Some of those press releases just oh, yeah. totally. Anyway, it's fun to think about things like
4: that. Do you know who was up for the Charles Lawton role in The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Who? Oh. Peter Laurie, Bela Lugosi, and Orson Welles. Any three of the three of those would have made for a very interesting film. As good as it is now. All right, let's get back to it. Well,
0: like I said, before, Lugosi wasn't nominated for Dracula in
4: a later film, immediately, until his agent probably big for him. He was supposed to be Death Takes a Holiday, I do instead of Frederick March, who was oh, fine. But that okay. was back when he was at his height anyway, yeah. so that was just a slip-up. He was, uh, according to biography, he just trusted his agent too much. He left it all up to him, money, everything. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. He he just didn't yeah. want anything to do with the business. He right. just said, get me the parts and I'll right. play them. Right. He and so, didn't
0: play the Hollywood game. In fact, he didn't even No. He learned hung around English very right He hung around with Hungarians and had his weird little house and spent money like mad.
4: Yes, yeah, so. there's a friend of mine that's a Lagosophile, and we were talking. Really? About, we we're talking about his his accent, and never really shaking it. And he said there was one of those cheesy monogram films, where some woman has changed, and he he looks at it and he goes, oh, she's undergone a metamorphosis." <laughs> and they left it in; they didn't even bother retaking it. Probably too expensive.
0: Probably sleeping in the set. So you're just taking care of the mail, putting the scrapbooks. So what about the films that he had? He used to show films to his friends on the he, time, right?
4: he had well, he didn't. I guess Yes he did. He no. used to watch them Well he personally them. I mean he didn't like right. run into the back room and thread it up. No. Andy, I guess, would do that yeah. more often. But he didn't really request them that much. Oh. You know, like, well, Andy and I would screen the You Bet Your Lives constantly because we were putting together the appendix for did the secret word of Groucho.
0: Did all of them end up there at his house? When, you know, that was he the had DeSoto the best album. of
4: Grouchos, not the, not, not the You Bet Your Lives. He had a few original You Bet Your Lives with the DeSoto ads intact.
0: Which he probably got. That, that,
4: they, that he just had from the 50s. Yeah. But when they were finally, when they were going to rerun them on Channel 5 in Los Angeles, they were stored in Groucho's, an annex for the garage, as a matter of fact. But those were all the edited ones with the where they have to blow up yeah. the DeSoto sign yeah. and all those strange At least he had that. Oh yeah. So they'd run we'd run those to get the good lines out of them. Yeah. His personal library was next to nothing as far as the March Brothers films went. He had like a night in Casablanca and that was it.
0: I think you told me he had half of Animal Crackers.
4: He had half a part of room service. Maybe, but the problem was he, that Aaron would start to get prints in, and so uh, it sloshed around what he had had to, at the beginning and what he was acquiring. But he did, he had like one half of Animal Crackers on one enormous reel, <laughs> and it Weird. just stopped like it. Uh, that was the first at the, scene half? Of the piano, huh? The first. The first half. The first half. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, you know, whichever half you like better it well, Apparently, he lost the Or maybe they just got the first. It was a terrible print. It wasn't an original really? print. So and the home be- movie stuff was of variable interest. Because you would think that Groucho's home movies would be something that you would pay, you know, seven fifty a yeah. seat to see. And it turns out they're like anyone else's home movies. He's sitting in a canoe with Melinda, making her smile, <laughs> making a wave at the camera. She's looking everywhere but the camera. Yeah. You know, walking yeah. along, he looks like he's camera conscious. For all the years that he was on stage and in the films, he, he's nervous in front of the camera. No interesting shots. You know, I suppose you'd have to get Orson Welles' he, home he, movies or something. You saw them all. So you Not all of them. i Basically, because they just—they all got to be the same, you know. I'd look on the side, and it would say Melinda and Palm Springs, and I, you know, we throw it up on the reel, and there'd be Melinda walking around, and she'd wave, and Groucho would walk out, and there was.
0: What about things with his brothers?
4: Well, I didn't get to. There was one that that uh, I wanted to see, but it was too damaged. The sprocket holes were broken, and it was on nitrate. Is that the one
0: with Harry Ruby? But there's one, yeah. There's one
4: one with all five brothers and Minnie and Harry Ruby and Long in uh, New York which I would love to have seen, but it would have been like the last screening of it if I even tried to put it on. I didn't want to be responsible for murdering the only print of that film. Sure. Also, Zeppo had a color home movie from the late 30s oh,
0: really?
4: of uh, Gable, Lombard, Stanwyck, and Taylor, and Zeppo, because he was a big agent and handled them at one time. Oh, he handled a lot of you know impressive people. He was like second or third next to William Morris, apparently, yeah. so... So uh, that would have been nice to see Gable and Lombard cavorting also, but I, again, because of the condition.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, could those things be restored?
4: Yeah, but streets? it was a matter of, you know, I didn't have the power to have them duplicated. It was really up to Aaron, and, and she had more important interest. things to do. There was mm-hmm. one that I saw that was pretty interesting. It went back to the early 30s, and it mm-hmm. was with Ruth and Arthur and Miriam as kids and Groucho. Mm-hmm. And uh, they staged a, a stereotype... Uh, morning in that the camera was set up outside in front of the house and the door opened up like father knows best and the two kids were each given their sack lunch and they were kissed on the forehead and went skipping down the lane (laughs) and Groucho kissed Ruth and it was obvious I don't know why they did it they just wanted to I guess spoof uh, romantic family whatever And that that was from the mid-30s but that's about the earliest thing I saw and all the stuff from the 50s is just making Melinda wave
0: were they 16 millimeter
4: yeah but no sound no sound so, um, and he had he had various specials in his, you know, he had a Cabot, couple of Cabot shows, or at least one Cabot show. Mm-hmm. He had some of the ones from the British, you bet your life, which were terrible. Yeah, they're terrible. They're terrible. Are they in the guy, no, it doesn't matter, it wouldn't make them any better. I'm just better. curious. The guy that they had. You really, you really appreciate Feniman. It's like when Zeppo left, you thought, big deal, and then you see the people he got stuck with, and you long yeah, for Zeppo. Yeah. All right, you don't appreciate George Feniman until you see this horrible man they got to play. He had no semblance of American sense of humor or timing, and with his British accent, it made everything like a starched collar. It just didn't work out there, so it only... It was like 1965. But it was constructed very much like You Bet Your Life, right? It's very similar to You Bet Your Life. They had two people come out, I think, and tell a story or something like that. It sounds like Tell It to Groucho. Yeah, there that was they were very similar to that. And there was some sort of money involved. So he had a
0: couple of those. He had, had a couple of those. Of he had
4: the uh, he had the person-to-person oh, yeah. with Murrow, which is another frustrating piece of footage because you get him five minutes talking about his garden and two minutes about his career. Spotted, yeah. Uh, some basically some stuff out of the fifties. The
0: Hollywood Palace Show.
4: Yeah, that stuff out of the fifties and sixties. What about the Academy
0: Award footage?
4: Uh, later, he got a print. I don't think he'd always had that. I think it, like Aaron secured a print of that. I see. So, uh, did you get a lot of requests besides from you know, obnoxious people like me? I don't know of anyone that they copied. I think. Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez was promised a copy of his You Bet Your Life. Bernie uh, Smith
0: said that he has a print. I mean, Pedro has one,
4: but Bernie's is
0: missing because he loaned it to somebody. It may have been Durant Pedro. Maybe.
4: But his was never a print. I don't know if Pedro got his print or not, or his print or his Pedro, print. Pedro. I don't know. He was supposed to get one. He's the only one I know that that they were actually planning on. But, you know, it's an expensive process and all that, and and it was up to Aaron, and she just had more yeah. weighty uh, decisions to make. But these,
0: these films are kind of throwing around, right? Uh, somebody fought, Andy, found, was it Andy found in the,
4: the bottom of a closet?
0: You know, they kind of dragged them out, and there's the deck bench. Show, him what is this? See
4: what it looks like. What do yeah. you mean? You bet your life?
0: Well, Joshua's
4: well, films
0: in general, they were just kind of
4: neglected. no. They were kept. They were kept in. There was a projection booth that was an annex to the den. Oh. And uh, they were stacked up there. They weren't necessarily on the floor unspooling, but they weren't. You know, he wasn't. There wasn't an archive where things were kept at a temperature and uh, nitrate prints were copied over and stuff like that. Because it's just, you know, it's his, it's only in recent years that this stuff has gotten to be so valuable to the fans and to him. It was just the stuff that he he ran off of Melinda and sent down to Kodak at the drugstore. So
0: you were tied on the keeper of the Groucho Marx archives as the keeper. Do you know where those things are at this
4: point? Uh, No, no idea. supposed to be en route to the Smithsonian. Uh, I don't think either Arthur or Aaron could have gotten away with just taking them and keeping them or selling them because it's in the will and that would be illegal. Uh And I don't know uh, that the Smithsonian has... Acquired them. I know the house has been sold, so they must have gone somewhere. Oh, it has. Yeah. So Kip Kip Wessel yes. wrote the Smithsonian and wrote me and said that said that they haven't received it yet. But oh, they, really?
0: That's interesting. You tell me that. <laughs> I guess he's trying to narrow it down. So I don't know
4: where it is. It's in limbo somewhere. It could be just in storage somewhere because the 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 will it, you know is tied in with the estate, which is tied in with the lawsuit, which is still going on between the yeah. estate and Aaron, and so maybe they just said, listen, let's not divvy anything up until we get this straightened out, which may be years. It must be, yeah. Possibly. And so that's the odd thing, is that, like, Archer is spokesperson for the estate, together with the Bank of America, and yet in the will it says that the stuff will be sent to the Smithsonian under Aaron Fleming guidance, and so getting them to work together would be like... M- Fields and West on the set of Chickadee, or Hitler and Ben-Gurion, or something like that. I mean, it's just, especially for something to them as trivial as that, to try to smoke the peace pipe. Uh, so I'm sure it's just stored somewhere, which is too bad because, you know, I hunted all around for stills. I had filing cabinets in order, everything from from candid shots of them growing up all the way up until the last photographs taken. You know, he'd do an interview, and then the guy would send me a copy, and that would go in the front of the filing cabinet, mm-hmm. and it was remarkably complete. And I never knew what was going to happen to it anyway. I, I didn't. I didn't even want it sent to the Smithsonian because I knew what they would do: is tag it and throw it in the basement. And that's what's going to happen if it goes there. You're not going to be able to go to the Smithsonian mm-hmm. and look through his lobby cards and stills and programs and stuff. You're not going to see that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're going to put the Spirit of St. Louis in the garage so you can look at, you know, a night in Casablanca photograph. (laughs) And I talked to the the archivist at UCLA when I was there, and I said, what are you suggesting? He said, your best bet is a small college, because a small college would be so flattered with the bequest that they would go out of their way to do it justice. But the problem with that is, prestige-wise, you know, Our Lady of Lompoc, uh, having your stuff donated there in the Smithsonian. So I think Erin was just after the prestige of saying the Groucho Marx collection is going to be in the Smithsonian, oh. and it's just too bad that she... You know, I I received a, a letter once from someplace. I don't even remember where it was. It might have been Wisconsin. And it said, we house the personal archives of... And it was all these people. The Groucho stuff would have been perfect. They had Moss Hart, George Kaufman. I think they have Riskin. Uh, all these bench they all these men of letters, mm-hmm. and uh, some film people. And it, you could just picture graphs of stuff there. And she'd never heard of the place. And she said, Well, I'll have to think about that. And it sat on her desk for months and nothing ever happened. And they really would have done, you know, it says people can visit it, oh. scholars can uh, consult the scripts and all that That's sort of terrible. stuff. And it would, I mean, I read this, I circled all the names that were so similar. And I said, he I mean, it's just made to order. It's just the kind of place for his stuff. But Did it was pointless. You didn't want to push anything either, right? Well, I mean, what was the point of me saying I think it would be good here? And she said I wouldn't. So what yeah. am I supposed to do? Send it off in the middle of the night with a letter saying don't tell her, but I sent it to Stephanie. Yeah, that would be your your final days were for uh um, okay. um, well, that's what my job took on more than just being an archivist. I ended up being a referee and and the the kindly old caretaker. Mm-hmm. Phone answer, public relations man. It was just during the the brief Nat Perrin regime, when he was the interim, what's the word? Conservator? Conservator. Uh, Henry Golas would stay there during the week, and I would stay there during the weekend. Oh. Watch over the place, you know, make sure. Groucho would be either in the hospital or, he was in the hospital for a stretch, and then home for a while, and then in the hospital again. So he was both there and not there during this time. When he was there, it was when it was at its most hectic because there'd be Arthur would want to visit in the morning, yeah. Aaron in the afternoon, so that never the twain met. And, uh, you know, the nurses would change shifts. All uh, oh, the lights, the power went out one night in the middle of the night, and here I am in charge, and there's an old sick man down the hall with a nurse who had never been there before, and me can't see my hand in front of my face, you know, so. There was a lot more responsibility then at that And it was at that time, even though he was totally unaware of what I was doing, that I felt I was doing him the biggest service I had ever done him. You know, I got a kick out of the fact that I got, that I was instrumental in getting crackers off the shelf. And uh, I felt that that was some sort of way of paying him back for all the enjoyment he gave me.
0: Right.
4: And I would always tell that, you know, I would tell it to him and stuff. Oh, it's okay and that sort of stuff. But. When you know the stakes were considerably higher when we're dealing with his health and safety and his last, what were obviously his last months, and it was you know as much as my ego would have liked him strolling down the hall and saying, "Gee, thank you for guarding over my life these past few months of my life," it was you know totally thankless and uh, I mean it was a kick staying there in the in the in the house on the weekend as as much as there was a big black cloud hanging over the place because his life was away, but if you knew him, you would have realized it was for the best at that mm-hmm. point because he mm-hmm. was in such bad shape. But it was, I mean, it was, you know, it was like a palace. Yeah. And I had the run of the place. And uh, What
0: was that that uh, Betty Comden said? She called you up,
4: right? Oh, yeah, that's a quote that I forgot mm-hmm. I said until I read it in Hector's book, in an invaluable book, I now see, because I forget what I say myself. Yes. Uh, Betty Comden who I also could appreciate for all that she had done, Singing in the Rain and Barclays of Broadway, and et cetera, et cetera, called uh, the weekend that Groucho died. He died on a Thursday, and it was like Saturday that she yeah. called. Mm-hmm. That's when all the news member funding saying, is it true that Darren spent the night is, is watching over the body? Is it true that – and I don't know. And I really didn't know, so yeah. I didn't even have to lie. I just said, I don't know, and they probably didn't – and they just kept pushing it. Mm-hmm. I'd say, I, just, I really have no details at all. Oh, well, would you assume that it was at Forest Lawn? Mm-hmm. I just have no details on it. So the phone rang, and Betty Comden was there, and she didn't know who I was. And I felt bad for her because she's obviously calling to express her condolences mm-hmm. and wants to talk to someone that she's talked to, Aaron, Arthur, Zeppo, someone that she knows. you know. And instead, this kid, um, you know, to her, answers the phone. And I briefly told her who I was, why I was there and she said she said she just doesn't know who to console you know because everything had divided itself into factions you were either an Arthur person or an Aaron person and so I said I guess we should console ourselves because if we knew him it was a personal loss and between Arthur and Aaron you know expressing your condolences were basically wasted and so uh, it was more like a Losing a friend and saying, Gee, I bet this is going to be really rough on so-and-so. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you feel when you found that you finally passed away?
4: Well, I didn't cry. It wasn't a surprise. I had talked to Andy that afternoon, which was no mean feat because he had recently been awarded conservatorship and was mm-hmm. staying away from the phone. But he talked to me and said that the doctors were shocked that he had stayed on this long, I mean, that day. Mm-hmm. were amazed that he was still hanging in and uh people were asking you know is there anything left of his sense of humor that sort of thing anyway a few days before he died when everyone else had figured that all he was good for was one one word answers yes no nods of the head yeah. hallucinations and stuff the nurse uh gave him the thermometer and when she was finished, She looked at it and said, oh, Mr. Marks, you'll be happy to know you don't have a temperature. He said, don't be silly, everyone has a temperature. <laughs> you know, not delivered quite like that, but yeah. still, it's, its I think it's more a reflex. You could hit his knee, and it would go up, and you'd tell him something like that, and he just couldn't resist the temptation to say that, even though, you know, his spirits were really low, because he sort of knew how bad off he was. So I, I talked to Andy the day, you know, the day that he was going to die, and I finally heard it on the radio on my way home from work, and it was just sort of, well, all right. So, finally, yeah. It's I mean it's frequently that way with old people or people that are you know relatives that are sick or something. If they're killed in an accident, you know, miserable trauma, and of course it's terrible when they die. But you know, from day to day, you know, Hector, what what's new? Is he going? Is he better? Is he? Well, since I don't have too much tape left,
0: why don't we get to? Dinner,
2: And we're back. Uh, Jay, that was really wonderful. Uh, let me ask you this. At any time back then, did Steve ever mention anything about uh, writing a book or thinking about doing a book?
3: I've got quite a year on about that. Um, I told you that he and I had corresponded for some time. It was such a delight for me to run down to the mailbox and grab these things. We were on Groucho's stationery. You know, that computerized image of, of Wolf J. Flywheel, you might, well, it was on the cover of An Evening with Groucho. Mm-hmm. So that was a stationery. And it was a great kick because he's a very funny guy and he told me stories that nobody else could tell me. But it's with great chagrin that I inform you that at one point in time I was cleaning a house and I was about to move. And I, I'm i kind of a neatness freak. Um, I'll admit that. And uh, I came across this file of all these Stollier letters, and I wrote to him, and I said, Steve, uh, would you like these? Because I'm going to move, and since I haven't really referred back to these for years, I really don't have much use for them. And much to my uh, sorrow, he said, no. He said, I don't know. If he's just being innately modest or he genuinely had no interest, but it turned out that he declined. So guess what old dad here did? I tossed him in the in the bin. Then years go by. I suddenly get this phone call from California. It's Steve Stolier. He had decided at that time to write a book. And he said haltingly, uh You didn't by any chance keep those letters, did you? And of course, I hadn't. Uh, So the only help I could be uh, going forward was uh, he would occasionally have a question for me, asking me to verify some recollection that he had. Mm -hmm. So it's just the way it goes, I guess.
1: Every time I hear a story about you throwing away some (laughs) of artifact, Jay, I think, among other things, how lucky we are that you hung on to these interviews so that we could share them with the world through
2: our podcast.
3: Yeah, well, they don't take up a lot of space. Also, I don't need to read the
2: cassette tapes. Paper gives off a much bigger flame. Oh, yes. This is true. This
1: is true. Yeah, you're like Harpo and Horse Feathers, just shoveling books <laughs> into the fireplace.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'll accept, I'll accept that.
1: One of the things that I love about Raised Eyebrows is uh, how much it is written from the fans' point of view. And I think it's the first major Marx book um, to really uh, narrate the experiences of just what it is to grow up loving the Marx Brothers. I guess because it's a personal memoir that isn't by a Marx brother or the child of a Marx brother. Um, So it's it's the first book that really seems to put into words the way we've all felt about the Marx Brothers growing up. It's a fan's eye view of Groucho. And obviously, Steve's experiences working for Groucho are the are the material of value in the book. But even more than that, I think, for me, it's the uh, the voice of a fan. Uh, Hector Arce, in his book, uh, flatly says in the intro, you know, I've never been a Groucho Marx fan, per se. Uh, He wrote an excellent book, uh, no doubt about it. But I love that about the book. And listening to you and Steve in 1979, you know, it feels, especially compared to your other excellent interviews with people, this one sounds like a couple of fans talking about what they love.
3: Oh, yes. No question about it. And I agree with you about that aspect of his book. It's just a marvelous book.
1: Um it's also a somewhat we're all kind of used to hearing Steve interviews you know um mm. post raised eyebrows uh there have been so many good ones he's done lots of podcasts and lots of media and there are some interesting differences He's always uh you know an entertaining uh raconteur and uh, his stories are are great but you know it's a somewhat less media savvy Steve Stolier maybe in seventy nine yeah. he doesn't do many of his signature impressions mm-hmm. uh, although he does a couple. Um, his, his well, he won, recent- my,
3: he won my heart because when I was staying with him at one point, I, I drove out there in January of 1981. I had the intention of moving out there and I was staying with him because of that. I bailed out real quick, by the way, but <laughs> he won me over right away because um, he knows that I'm a big enthusiast. Of Rondo Hatton, Mm -hmm. who was the only movie monster who did not require makeup. (laughs) And uh, Rondo's repertoire is not that expansive, but Stolier would nail it. He would just, we'd be talking about Rondo Hatton, don't ask me why. And then all of a sudden I'd hear Stolier say, Oh, my (laughs) friend. As Rondell says in uh, House of Horrors, and again, there's a very limited reper- repertoire. But Steve may be the only person who has nailed <laughs> the Rondo Hatton voice.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, uh, knowing like what Nat Perrin sounded like through Steve, and oh, that's yeah. one of the pleasures of the audio version of Raised. Oh yes, awesome. yes, and a lot of his interviews too. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how in the interview. Um, he reveals because you ask him that he has not at that point met woody allen with whom we know he later developed a friendship and uh, apparently one of the things that uh woody allen most enjoys about steve's company is that he does so many dead-on impressions of obscure studio players from classic Mm -hmm. hollywood oh yeah
3: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's great
2: so, as I mentioned before, Raised Eyebrows is essential reading for any student of the Marxes, And be sure you pick up the uh, latest edition from 2012 with new material, which brings the story into the 21st century. And as Noah mentioned, we highly recommend the uh, audiobook version read by Steve himself, where he really channels the Elder Groucho and does a, quite a few other great imitations. Although, as Leo de Rocher leaves a bit to be desired, as far as I'm concerned. But, <laughs> but uh, to be honest, if you're a, even if you're not a fan of audiobooks, this is really worth seeking out.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Oh, yes. And as many of you know, Steve has been trying to get raised eyebrows brought to the big screen. And when that comes closer to fruition, perhaps we'll have Steve back on to, uh, to talk about it.
1: Everyone from the council can write in with their casting suggestions because he loves
3: that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so.
2: But Jay's kept his costume around just in case, right?
3: Yeah, but I don't fit into it anymore.
2: (laughs) You mean after the quarantine or before?
3: Oh, even before. We're talking about the old Swallowtail coat that I wore at the Merck's Brotherhood.
1: Oh, Um, you cut quite a figure in it. I should have cut the uh,
3: the coat a little wider, but
0: uh,
1: (laughs) I still have it. You and Steve spent some time together in New York. There's some great pictures of you in Central Park at the Alice in Wonderland statue. Uh, when, when did that take place relative to this interview?
3: seems to me that I met him face to face during that interview. And at one point, I wish I could give you a better answer in terms of the, the year, but obviously he moved out to New York at one point. And... I basically begged him to put me up for a week, and he agreed. So that was wonderful. And the first night, uh, we were walking down Broadway, and he was teasing me. He was challenging me to guess where he was leading me. And about halfway there, I guessed it, it was the Algonquin, yeah. but he he introduced me to it. And of course, that's that's always a big thrill, you know. Mm-hmm given the history of that place. So again, he's been very generous. I mean, he was generous to have me over for the interview. He was generous to have me over at his New York pad. And obviously more than generous to allow me to stay with him for several weeks in 1981. So he's always been a very uh, supportive friend, I will say that.
2: Well, thanks, Jay. And thanks again for allowing us access to your archives. We're running a bit low on these interviews, so you might have to go out and start doing some more. (laughs)
3: I'll think about
1: it. Maybe maybe you could interview Matthew (sighs) Conium.
3: Too much to hope for.
2: So I guess that's going to put a wrap on uh, this episode of the Jay Hopkins interviews. Join us again in a few weeks for another full-scale Marx Brothers Council podcast, where hopefully Matthew uh, will be located or rescued or whatever (laughs) is needed to get him back here. But, uh, we promise he'll be here. And if not, we'll have somebody who has a similar accent. Uh, so before we leave, we're going to play a song. And as usual, Jay is totally unprepared to introduce it. Jay, take it away.
3: I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> If you're asking me in all seriousness.
1: Why would anyone do that? Yes, Mr. Benny.
3: I guess I'd like to hear a song that Comer and Ruby wrote. Go West, young man. But I'd like to hear the version that Ding Crosby did with the Andrews sisters. Can you find that, do you think?
2: If not, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
5: Before you go to Buffalo, to Baltimore or Borneo, to Eastern Pennsylvania or Sudan,
3: go
0: west, young.
5: If you go to that land, Sonny, you will have a lot of money. If you bring the money with you when you come
0: to, to the Long Prairie.
5: Yippee! 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 Before you read a travel letter,
0: scamper off to Trinidad, to Albany, New York, or Yucatan.
5: Go west, young man.
0: East they live on
5: donuts in the west. The natives grow nuts and I'll guarantee you'll go nuts if you come to the Long prairie. Yippee-yi, 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 yippee-yi. Yippee-y, yippee-y. Go west, young man. Go where the air puts head on your chest, young man. You can ride a buck and bronco or a pony. You can cut a cap in half and make baloney. Go west, young man. Go right out there and give, give them the very best you can. Don't go north, don't go south, don't go east, have a care. Don't
0: go up, don't go down, don't go here, don't
5: If you are fond of hunting, there's no place that can compare You may not bag a lion or a tiger or a bear But if you want a jackass, there are plenty of them there Go west, young man In sunny California, when the clouds are breaking loose And you complain about the rain, they give you this excuse It isn't raining
3: rain, you know it's raining orange juice Go west, young man
5: The judges there are very fair, they always are, of course The cowboy and his missus went to court for a divorce The cowboy got the children and the missus got the horse Go Go west west. Young Young man, go out and till till the soil there Dig for gold and you'll find oil there
3: When the snow flies as the crow flies Go
5: westward, home. If there's a cattle shortage which can happen like as not And they can't find a hunk of meat to chuck into the pot They sit around and beef about the beef they haven't got Go away Yeah